1: Talkers. We're your hosts.
2: I'm Anita Flores. And I'm Sandrina Tien. And today, our conversation about healthcare continues with our next guest. So we are here with Frances Padilla, who is the president of Universal Healthcare Foundation of Connecticut. She is involved in the policy aspect of healthcare, and we thought it'd be a good idea to ask questions about healthcare in general. There's been a lot of changes to uh, the healthcare scape with the inaction of the uh, Affordable Care Act.
0: So, Francis, can you tell us,
2: our listeners, first a little bit about you?
0: Sure. Thank you for inviting me, Sandrine and Anita. Yeah. I, um, so, I am, as you said, um, president of the Universal Healthcare Foundation of Connecticut, and in that role, uh, I work on state-level health policy. Our mission is to um, ensure universal access to quality and affordable health care um, and equitable health care uh, in our state, but because uh, health insurance and health care delivery are really impacted heavily by federal policy, it's um, it's always a juggle between what's going on at the federal level and what's going on at the state level and uh, we've been doing this work now for nearly 20 years and in Connecticut we have been able to achieve some good policy wins that have helped people uh, get insurance, that have helped people uh, be able to access actual care through their insurance, but there are many areas still in need of work because healthcare is so expensive and the system is still so complicated and difficult to navigate. And so our work is really at that level, the policy advocacy and also um, reaching out into communities across the state and um, providing a platform for the voices. Of Connecticut residents and consumers. We work in partnership with a lot of different organizations both in Connecticut and federally and there are other organizations like hours that are working in other states as well. So we like to um, join forces as much as we can to both learn about what's happening in different uh, states and going on at the federal level and to try to actually influence um, better outcomes.
1: Yeah I think uh... I can only speak from my own experiences with health insurance. So I think for me, the biggest thing that I um, have sort of experienced is private health insurance when I've worked full-time versus being on Medicaid, so I'm curious. Uh, would, can you give us some insight into the dis- two distinct differences between private health insurance versus government insurance programs, such as Medicaid?
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, with private insurance, of course, there are um, premiums, deductibles, and copays that each of us um, and uh, each of us has to pay. For those of us that get our coverage through our employers, our employers pay a portion. And we pay a portion. Um, the Medicaid program is is uh, run on income eligibility. So, uh, different each state has their own income eligibility requirements. And the funding for Medicaid comes through taxes through the federal government, matched also by state investment. So, there's little or no cost sharing in the Medicaid program, whereas in private insurance, there's very significant cost sharing Uh, and there was a time when one could work for uh, an employer that offered coverage almost free to their employees, but as the cost of health care has risen over the last 20 years, that's become increasingly difficult for employers, large and small. And uh, and so there's a lot more cost sharing to the point where it's pretty typical for any of us to pay 20% of the premium and our employer pay 80%. Um, there's also been an increase in the deductibles and the use of high deductible health plans where in order to get your first dollar paid by your insurance company, you first have to pay your deductible. And in some cases, people have deductibles as high as $6,000. And that doesn't that doesn't even include, um, you know, your copays when you go to the doctor's office, which differ between, you know, primary care is, is usually a little lower copay, and then specialty care is higher, and then there's prescription drug copays as well. So as you can see, there's a lot more outlay of money that one has to put forward uh, in the private insurance scenario, uh, and in Medicaid, so long as people are. Eligible based on their low income, they are able to get care that is uh, without as much cost-sharing. The problem for the Medicaid program is that although generally the benefits are pretty comprehensive, um, some uh, some doctors and hospitals are less inclined to accept Medicaid patients, particularly private doctors. hospitals less so, but um, private doctors because they're not paid as what they feel is um, cost and so um, quite often people in the Medicaid program have difficulty accessing care because unless they go to public clinics, they may not be able to get the care that they need particularly on the specialist side which is usually higher cost care. Yeah. Well, when you say
1: specialist, do you mean mm-hmm. like, so dental, mm-hmm. the eye doctor, uh, dermatologist, those are some ones, gynecologist?
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Well, specialist, uh, dent- dental is a separate issue, so we can come back to that in a moment. But yes, that's what I ref- I'm referring to. So if you need to see a cardiologist, you need to see uh, and an- a gynecologist, you need to see a um you know, a specialist or if you have cancer, those doctors uh, who specialize quite often do not consider Medicaid to pay enough and uh, quite often do not serve patients in the Medicaid program. The other program that's that's run by the government uh, is the Medicare program. And the Medicare program, you become automatically eligible for it at age 65. You can also be eligible earlier if you are deemed disabled, which has happened, happens to people all the time. The Medicare program is a program that was created in the 1960s, and we all contribute uh, to it through our wages over our working lives. So we have that Medicare employment tax that's taken out of our wages every pay period, and it goes to underwrite the cost of the Medicare program so that when we turn 65 or, you know, God forbid, become disabled before then, we can go into the Medicare program. And it's a a very efficient program, and uh, there's some cost sharing in it, but much less than private. And uh, folks buy a supplemental plans to Medicare so that they can get everything that they need. And so that's the other public program.
1: I'm curious about, I just want to go back to something you mentioned before, which was that I think you said deductibles have gone up. Mm-hmm. Do mm-hmm. you have any thoughts as to why
0: that's happened? Well, deductibles have risen because there's been uh, demands by employers. uh, demanding of insurance companies, that they develop products, insurance products, that reduce the premium at the front end. And in order for the premium to be lower, and so your premium is what you pay in to the insurance company on a monthly basis, right? And uh, if you're getting your coverage through your employer... Your employer is paying part of it and you're paying part of it. If you're paying less on the premium side, then the insurance company will want more on the deductible. And so that, so for example, if your monthly premium is $250, $300 a month, and you feel that that's what you can afford to pay monthly, it is likely that. Before your insurance company will pay anything at the beginning of the year, of the plan year, uh, you're, you will have to pay a premium that can range. If you're an individual, it could be thirty-five hundred dollars. It can be um, four thousand, even higher. And if you're a family, it can be nine, ten, twelve thousand dollars. And so, yeah, it's really – we're in a bad place uh, in this country right now because the rise of high-deductible health plans has really um, been exponential. Now, I will say this in defense of employers uh, who want to do the right thing by their employees, some employers, in order to be able to offer coverage – and it too be affordable to them because, especially businesses with fewer than 100 or fewer than 50 employees, healthcare costs are their highest highest cost next to labor costs, next to wages, and um, they rise every year. So it's very difficult for them to anticipate, you know, exactly how much more am I going to have to lay out, and so, what they'll do sometimes is that they will offer a high-deductible health plan to their employees and then give them a certain amount of money that reserves a certain amount of money that will help with that high-deductible. So, if the deductible is 5000 they may say to their employees, you pay 1000 or 2000 of that and we'll pay the other 3000 And it all is a sort of a game of, of, of timing and, you know, for people who are healthy, who don't go to the doctor very much, they might not, you know, the deductible may not be an issue. But for people who have chronic illness, um, diabetes, asthma, you know, any number and kind of illnesses that do have the need to go to the doctor on a regular basis, for the employer, that means that that deductible, they're going to pay it. They're going to end up paying it on top of whatever they contribute for their premium. And for the employee, they're going to pay it too. Now, I'm talking right now only about people that are insured through in the private market through their employer. But there are a lot of people who are insured in the private market on their own. And that is extremely, extremely expensive. So those folks that are uh, entrepreneurs, you know, who are self um, employed sole proprietors, uh, for them to carry insurance on their own, is they have to pay everything, everything. And we know of stories of people in this state who spend twenty two thousand dollars a year wow. on healthcare.
1: Wow, you have to be yeah. making a lot of money. <laughs> you really do, or you're in debt. I guess that's true.
0: Well, our, medical debt is a big problem in this country.
1: Right. Isn't? Yeah, yeah, I don't – well, I feel like I've – do I know if this is true? I know that I, in the past, have had bills that I've had – like medical bills that I fortunately have been able to – like knew that the the insurance company had made some sort of mistake and I've gotten it figured out, but – I've noticed uh, when that was happening, if for other bills that I've had, non-medical, sometimes that amount goes up the later you are. But I haven't seen that with medical bills, as in like, you know, there was a time period where I had to work out like a a miscommunication uh, on a bill and Mm -hmm. it took like Mm -hmm. six or seven months for me to get this figured out. And I was getting this bill every single month, but it never changed. So I just didn't know if it's a little bit different, like with depending on your situation. Like for example, if you get a hospital bill from the emergency room and you can't afford to pay it, does that like amount that you owe ever gain interest? Is that interest. the right word? Or do they just I don't know. Does it just kind of stay well, the
0: same? Well here's let's break that down a little bit. So if a person um winds up in the emergency room and they either have no insurance or uh or their insurance will pay for it for some reason because they deem that that really wasn't an emergency, then that person has will receive the bill and can go to the hospital business office and say, I you know have this bill and I am unable to pay it all. Uh, I don't have that money. There could be a payment plan developed. Their hospital... Um, do have certain resources that are contributed to them. Some that come from state um, government, uh, and they can help the patient under, you know, pay for the for their bill without having to take collections action. Hmm. Um, however, if you know some people will let the bill languish and not and not ask. Not say anything, right? And be intimidated by the size of the bill. And there again, there are so many stories of people who have gone to um, the emergency room. Say a woman goes who thinks she's having a heart attack. It turns out she has heartburn. And one of the reasons, you know, it's encouraged that you, if you feel that kind of sensation, you should get it checked because um, women experience heart attacks differently. So that said, she turns out to have heartburn and finds herself with a bill uh, from the emergency room for $30,000. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so the, and the hospitals and doctors do turn these cases over to collection. And collections, it becomes a real problem, right? Because the collection agencies can be quite aggressive. I would just about and that. to answer your question about whether the whether the bill actually increases in um, in size, it, uh, I I guess I'm not a hundred percent sure about that. I, I don't know, but I don't think it increases in size because they've added some interest to it. But that's a good question. We're worth checking
2: into. So I I work with um, a lot of people that have a lot of medical debt and I've never seen interest on the bills, but I have seen where there's a collections agency involved and they are yeah. quite aggressive, like you were saying. I mean, it is mind-blowing. Like I had one woman who they were calling her daughter. Oh my God. Like mm-hmm. trying mm-hmm. to hunt her down for this bill. But at the end of the day, it, it kind of was like, I don't know, I just feel like people aren't really in the know of things. But then I always remind them, like, look, you have to look and see what you're signing. Because a lot of times these corporations, I call them corporations, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know, they they cover themselves in other ways. And so if you're not looking at the fine print, you. I do end up being screwed. However, I do say, like Francis was saying, you know, a lot of these hospitals and things they do have sliding scale programs and things like that. So it is good to communicate with them. Don't just let it just go away. It's not going
0: to go away. I agree. I would. <laughs> yeah. I, I would advise anyone: don't let it languish. Communicate yeah. mm-hmm. with communicate with the, communicate with the doctor yeah. or the you know the provider or the hospital. Do everything that you can to let them know that you're not just avoiding the bill um, and, uh, and document everything, make copies of everything. It's important, right? At the end of the day, some of these uh, providers, some of the health systems are very aggressive too, and they don't wait very long before turning uh, a bill over to collection. So it's really tough, right? And if you're very sick and whether it's in the emergency room or not in the emergency room, but when people have serious illness like cancer, it's so difficult to um make sense of all of this stuff on top of not feeling well. and um and and that's where, you know, that part of our system is is really misplaced, I think. And so, as you say, it, Go to the office, the the business office, talk to folks there.
2: So we talked a little bit about specialists earlier, and we Mm -hmm. touched upon it, but I know we said we'll go back to it later. But as far as dental, is that ever
0: covered, particularly Mm -hmm. on Medicaid? Dental is is interesting. Um, I want to say yes, but I want to qualify that by saying that different states have different Medicaid benefits. In there. I mean the federal government has requirements about what benefits are covered and in Medicaid dental is covered but it goes back to this issue of whether they pay enough or are considered to pay enough to uh, for dentists to accept patients on Medicaid. I can tell you that in Connecticut the number of dentists who accept Medicaid patients is probably possible to count. Um, our three collective hands, mm, yeah. <laughs> and um, and so people end up going to um, clinics, and uh, you know the community health centers quite often have dental services. Emergency rooms uh, quite often have dental emergency units. Uh, but but I want to say that dental coverage isn't even great in the private market right? i was gonna and say yes agreed yeah yeah it, it's like it, it's almost as if the mouth were not part of the body <laughs> <laughs> right and <laughs> and even though research shows how significant an influence um, dental oral health has on the rest of your health uh in gingivitis infections, those kinds of things can affect the heart, for example. And so uh, private insurance uh, is doesn't cost a lot for dental, and it's not usually included in the health benefits. So, so separate my personal experience, I have my health benefits through my employer. I have a separate dental plan. And I have a separate vision plan mm-hmm. because the eyes also are seem to not be considered yeah, to be part another of part of the body, <laughs> the body. right? So, and so um, the the cost of dental coverage is not that high; it's not that expensive, but it generally got very limited benefits. And so the important thing with dental health is prevention mm-hmm. and going for those cleanings, and you know, taking care to avoid cavities or at least getting them filled, all of those things that can avoid more significant needs and that are much more expensive because the dental coverage typically does not cover the more expensive kinds of procedures. So, people that need root canals and crowns or implants, those kinds of things, end up having to pay out-of-pocket thousands of dollars.
2: I have a $5,000 bill right now oh, that I'm paying yeah, inching yeah. my way. That's From been a huge dentist. part of my credit debt this past I year.
0: Have, mm-hmm. I had some dental work done last year that I kept kidding around to my, my friends and my family that I felt like I had bought a new car. <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
1: In my profession, I do a lot of uh, digital video producing. And so a lot of my work, sometimes it's been full time and sometimes it hasn't been. and, for me seemingly there's no like middle ground whenever of course my that's my first thing when i have like health insurance through a provider i find out what dentist i have access to but the last few times that has happened the dentist feels so luxurious like i i still remember mm-hmm. the the last dentist i went through through a provider i just remember that they had like a screen up in the in the room where they were doing my teeth cleaning that i could look at you know so i didn't get stressed out during the teeth cleaning and then and at the end of each of these visits, somebody would say, the dentist or the the assistant would say something like, you know, you could get adult braces. Let me just do some calculations. Then they'd bring someone else in oh my and go, so even with yeah. your insurance, that'll be, you know, five, six, seven thousand six, $7,000. And I say, okay, great. Mm-hmm.
2: I'm going to pass, mm-hmm. but um, thanks so much. When I started my process of dental work the extensive work that I had to have done they literally had this woman come out the dentist stepped out and this woman came in and literally like sat down and was like hello how are you like being super nice and I'm like what's going on here and then she's like so <laughs> giving me her spiel about the cost and mm. I just kept seeing dollar sign dollar sign dollar sign and when she told me the final amount I was like <gasps> Ugh. And she's like, but you can break it mm-hmm. up in payments of blah blah blah, and I'm like,
0: okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, right. And uh, they also many of of the dental practices also offer financing, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can take out a loan, a loan to get dental work done, and you know, I I think that these are workarounds um, that are symbolic of how bad our system is um medicare doesn't cover dental benefits either and oral health in older people is so important oral health and i mean that's been one of my experiences personally with my mother my mother always had dental problems all her life like she came she has kind of weak teeth genetically, right? And uh and all her life my mom's had dental issues. And as she's gonna be ninety this year and, and she's got so few teeth and it's because dental care even though she always went to the dentist and always tried it just got more and more and more expensive and she really couldn't afford it. And at this stage in her life, she's like, I'm not going to do anything about it. But it makes a big, big difference in what she can eat, how she, well she chews it, how well she digests it, and how it affects her the rest of her body. And and so I think uh, these workarounds, you know, being able to take out a loan to get extensive dental work done when you're in your 40s, unless our system improves is probably not a bad investment in your future, but look at the choices that people are being made to to make, forced to make, and I um, personally feel that, uh, you know, dental oral health is as much a part of our overall health and the health care you need to keep yourself healthy and to be able to keep, you know, doing what you need to do. Um, should not be so difficult and so expensive. Yeah, there's a lot of education needed. A lot of education needed. And the more young people who are healthy uh, get health coverage and use it, right? Because not everybody, if if it's so expensive, if it's so expensive, like the deductible issue, that you can't actually use it, then it's worthless. But if you have insurance, and you're able to afford using it. Then you need to go for your preventive screenings and your physicals, and you know, do your dental cleanings, all of those things, because that helps to keep you healthy. Secondly, uh, the more healthy people there are insured, the that it helps to lower the cost for everybody, because insurance works on the law of large numbers, and that is one of the uh, issues that the Affordable Care Act has been dealing with right where um, they they wanted to be sure that younger people healthier people not just young healthy but healthier people also got insurance so that the pool of people who are covered doesn't end up being only people who are sick mm-hmm. because, then you have higher costs because they need more complex care and the costs end up being higher. And so in 2014, when the Affordable Care Act began to be implemented throughout the country, there was that individual mandate that required you to get insurance, Um, otherwise you would have to pay a tax or uh, not a tax but a fine. Uh, for being uninsured, but that was the impetus behind that, that the that the more people covered, that everybody covered, then would help to keep costs down. And the other thing was that the Affordable Care Act enacted something very, very important. Before the Affordable Care Act, if you had a pre-existing condition, so if you had um, diabetes and you went to buy to get health insurance out as an individual, uh, the insurance companies could deny you on the basis of that pre-existing condition. Basically, they didn't want you because you would cost them money. And the Affordable Care Act outlawed that. And, uh, and so having everybody in, and the more healthy people, the better, plus not allowing insurance companies to deny people on the basis of pre-existing conditions, those two factors together were part of the underpinning of the Affordable Care Act and very significant change in public policy in this country that we have not seen before.
1: This is a good lead into to our, our next question, which is uh, there mm-hmm. have been a lot of changes, as you've been talking about, to health insurance as a whole with the passing of the Affordable Care Act. Do you feel that it has had an impact on how providers approach delivery of services, i.e., encouraging screenings for diseases, illnesses, and as Sandrine has made a note of, uh, or you've no- Sandrine, you've noticed more ads encouraging HIV testing and mammogram yeah. and mammogram screenings.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Well, they're they're. The Affordable Care Act also enacted a provision that screenings like mammograms and colonoscopies uh, would be uh, and physicals would actually carry no co-pay. So, regardless of whether you were getting your insurance through one of the uh, health insurance marketplaces or through Medicare or through your private employer, right? And uh, and that was very important, too, because there, again, the more we can prevent, the better. You, pre- it, it, The better for uh, the overall cost and the better for health. And so there was, between 2014 and 2017 or 2018, um, a really big uptick of people, pers- you know, pursuing preventive care and more people covered. and. You know, it was it was lumpy at the beginning and all of that. We all saw that in the media, right? With um, people having trouble enrolling, and but as 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 the kinks got taken out of the system, the um, the more people were showing up in doctors' offices, hospitals, with some kind of coverage. Twenty million more people mm-hmm. have been able to get coverage through the Affordable Care Act. And when the act was passed in 2010, there were 50 million people without insurance. Wow! And across the country, that's like, like that's a crisis, right? And 50 million people, HIV, um, you know, all of all of the kinds of things that um, we know to be public health crises would be would not be attended to to the level that they are being now without the affordable Mm -hmm. care and the act i don't call it obamacare because i i the reason that i don't is because it was coined obamacare by people who didn't like the act the law and um sort of disparaging it Mm -hmm. um it it Really, it is a landmark piece of legislation, the likes of which we have not seen since Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security. Is it perfect? No. It has not been perfect for a lot of reasons that I don't need to go into now unless you want to know more about it. But the issue is that there were 50 million people without coverage, and the goal was to get more people covered. The goal was also to get more people healthy. And less, the goal needed to also be to reduce the cost of health care, and I think that the initial implementation did not succeed in doing that. The costs of healthcare care were rising faster than wages for a decade before that and there's lots of data around that that the cost of health insurance was rising faster than median wages in the United States and so the, the the fact that healthcare costs continued to rise during the implementation of the affordable care act doesn't mean that it caused that rise it it actually slowed the rate of increase but it didn't sufficiently um uh, Reduce the cost of healthcare because a lot of other things started to happen. Hospitals began to consolidate and become big, big mega systems that rose, that increased healthcare costs. A number of issues occurred but in terms of people getting more care and, and physicians being able to see people, um, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
1: no, I think uh, that all makes a lot of sense. I think we've gotten to the advice portion-ish
2: uh, of our questions. With the rising cost of drugs, can you offer any advice for people who have financial limitations to obtaining certain drugs as a result of limited
0: coverage? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm going to preface what I say uh, with a caveat, and it is that the cost of um, prescription drugs is a whole nother area that really is begging for for, for reform. And there's a lot of money in in um, drugs, lots and lots of money, and a lot of um, political. There's a lot of lobbying that goes on by the industry, both at the congressional level, and mostly at congressional level. But we're also seeing it at state levels because more states are starting to try and do something to control the cost of drugs it's, it's very difficult so I'm, I'm cautious about giving advice to people about the different ways that they can access um, discounts and more affordable drugs because there are a lot of shysters out there mm, I know <laughs> I, I know what you mean okay. I, <laughs> there are a lot of shysters yeah, yeah. so people need to be careful so, the pharmaceutical companies have what they call patient assistance programs, and these are programs that they set up to make their drugs uh, more affordable to people that need them. And they, they, sometimes they run those programs themselves, and other times they, the programs are run by the state government. And other times they're run by non nonprofit groups. And so when if your listeners are trying to figure out, like, okay, how do I get some assistance? I guess the best place to start is to know what drug you're talking about, who's manufacturing that drug, see if they have a patient assistance program and how is it administered. And I I know that you're a medical student. Social worker, um, Sandrine. So, people need help with this kind of thing because it's, especially if you take a lot of medication, it's so difficult to research all the options and to fill out the paperwork for the different programs. Mm-hmm. And so, you, everybody needs an advocate mm-hmm. in healthcare. It goes, you know, to the point that I was making earlier that when you're when you when you're really sick and you have these medical bills, it's very difficult to negotiate all of
2: that and the unfortunate thing is that I see people when they're at this point and it's like I don't want to say it's too late but it's like when they're at their most vulnerable time Mm -hmm. and it's like now they're reaching out for assistance and I can help them but unfortunately and I have such a limited amount of time and I will refer them to like a patient assistance program that I know of depending on the diagnosis I may refer you know, reach out to that organization. Um, you know, if, if it's like a cancer diagnosis or Parkinson's disease, you know, there's different organizations on those levels to help that can possibly help. So I do try, but at the same time, it's like I feel like just there's so many people that don't know, which is why I guess we're doing this episode, yeah. really. I didn't know about this. Yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. So just bring awareness to this. I agree about the advocate thing that may
1: definitely need somebody when you're sick, especially. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, that sometimes doctors have, they get coupons from the pharmaceutical companies that they can pass on to their uh, patients, and those can be very, very helpful in affording a medication. Um, last year, my daughter needed some medication. Um, that one, we found out what the actual cost of it was. We were like, whoa! Wait a minute. <sighs> It was amazing and uh, but her doctor had coupons and he offered the coupons and that was pretty easy, you know. So uh, advising patients to ask about coupons is important. Um, there is a website that seems pretty reputable, uh, it's called goodrx dot com. And yeah, people a lot of people use good good rx. I've heard of um, and what do you use it for? Mm-hmm. For To search the to to get discounts, to find discounts on drugs, to find discounts, and sometimes you know you got to figure out like if you have insurance, what's the insurance going to pay for it, and then um, go compare what you could get with um a discount through our good rx uh i'm sorry
2: francis i'm so sorry i just wanted to add um rx is also really good too similar to good same mm -hmm. kind of thing they do the same Mm -hmm. thing good rx does
0: you know for for older um older patients who are members of aarp uh they um they offer uh drug discount cards mm-hmm. as well. And there are other nonprofit organizations and retail pharmacies that also offer drug discount cards, but there too, people have to really read the fine print and be sure that they understand what they're getting, what they're not getting, and you know, be sure that if they're paying anything for them, that it's going to be worth buying
2: them. So as we're talking, I know that you, we know that you represent the policy level of like, you know, healthcare and things like that. So like, how is we, as our listeners, ourselves, like all, all of us living <laughs> in our current state, what are some things that we can do to, to facilitate or promote change in our healthcare system?
0: From a policy uh, perspective, I will tell you that uh, I think we really need national health care and we're a long way from it but um, we're also at a time right now that if you're, you know, remotely following national politics you, you see that there's a discussion happening uh, about uh, Medicare for all and that's just one of multiple pathways maybe to national health care. But the I think that there's a growing appreciation for the fact that our healthcare system in this country is extremely complex, confusing, expensive, inefficient. Uh it is not serving the people serving Americans, um across the board and even people with insurance are, realize that as you said earlier about um, you know not realizing it until you need it right then you realize oh my goodness this is how expensive and, and difficult it is but uh, in terms of our ability as residents of this country I think to influence and to demand change I think we have to uh, we have to question our policymakers, about what is happening in healthcare. Healthcare is an industry, and it is the role of government to to monitor industry. Uh, there are a lot of rules that. Um, these companies have to follow and they use their significant wealth and ability to lobby to make sure that the rules are as lenient as possible. Um, but at the end of the day, our state legislatures and our Congress really are responsible for ensuring that we don't get gouged, that we are not um, discriminated against in healthcare. That we are able to uh, get the coverage that we need, and I think we have in we have to ask our our policymakers um, whatever proposals are out there, and there are multiple proposals right now that are being called Medicare for All at the national level. But basically, we have to ask about each about each of our candidates. Um, and even people already in in office, how will you cover everybody cradle to grave? Like, there's been certain set of principles. You should have coverage from the point of birth until the point of death. It should be consistent whether you're employed or not. How will it cover everyone's cradle to death to to grave? Will it be affordable to the individual, to families, to businesses? Um, we should have, uh, I believe we should have a standard in this country that no one should pay more than a certain percentage of their income for health care. Just the way that theoretically we say that to be the case for housing. But, you know, we know that in housing there's a lot. There are a lot of places, a lot of markets where housing is way too expensive for people's income. But imagine if you've got high income, I mean, uh, high housing costs and high medical costs. What is left? Not much. Especially, not much, especially when you have, well, it's making young people not want to have kids, not able to, not able to, Yeah. So that's one principle, affordability, Um, and sustainability is another principle. So that, you know, how will this be sustainable for us as a country or as a state over time? Because one thing is to expand Medicaid as we have under the Affordable Care Act and allow a whole lot more people to be covered that weren't covered before and then pull back the funding later and drop all those people, and there they go again, being uninsured. Um, So sustainability is really important. And then how will it ensure access to quality and equitable health care? A card doesn't guarantee that you're going to get the care that you need when you need it, Um, so you have to make sure that that guarantee is there. Every doctor in this country should accept Medicaid. If you take the Hippocratic oath, <laughs> you should be will- You should be- you should be taking care of poor people. I'm with you. If you took your Hippocratic oath, you should take care of poor people. Um, but how you know? Access to quality and equitable health care is really, really critical. So we have um, a political and ideological problem in this, state, in this country about health care and whether healthcare care is a human right and uh, whether universal health care is, um, you know, a slippery path to socialism, which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, are, there are capitalist countries around the world, Japan, Germany. Australia, all have universal health care and they are not, you know, communist countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that I think what we can do is we have to ask the questions, we have to beg the issue, we've got to make it part of, the, of every campaign, uh, whether it's uh, for state legislature or for the office of the president. And... Um, and The country has to demand
1: it, round up. I, I'm, I'm with you all the way. I would hope if uh, I ever have children, I mean, I don't know how likely this is, but a nice thing for me would be the thought that I have a kid who doesn't have the same mentality as me now, which is when you were talking about having health insurance from cradle to the grave— I can't. Unfortunately, just mm-hmm. because of the way it is here, I'm like, ooh, what a luxury! Like, like one of my good friends is um, from Norway, and she grew up with and has you, you know, had yeah. universal health care, and just it's just so different. And I think, ooh, wow, what a what a world, what a life! Um, so, yes, in a perfect world.
0: Well, where? No. No, it's not even about a perfect world. There's nothing perfect about perfection. It's ridiculous. We, the United States of America, is the only industrialized country that does not have. Universal yeah, it's uh it is absolutely
1: wild. But I think that you have offered some really uh I mean I've learned a lot and a lot. uh I mean we won't call it advice if that makes you uncomfortable <laughs> but I do feel like you've made some really good uh perhaps suggestions and points and points. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But thank you so yeah. much Francis for mm-hmm. you know sharing uh all all that you know.
0: It's been my pleasure and it's been very lovely talking with the Aww. two of you and uh I'm- very glad that you're doing this. This is a very important public service that you are um, offering to people to give them an opportunity to to learn some things and to figure out how they can become active.
1: Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today, Francis. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other. listeners we'd love to hear from you drop us a line or a voice memo at caretalkerspodcast at gmail.com that's c-a-r-e-t-a-l-k-e-r-s-p-o-d-c-a-s-t at gmail.com send us your feedback questions or topics we should chat about Care Talkers is a more banana production executive produced by me, Anita Flores, and Sandrine Etienne. It's engineered by Jesse Caron and produced by Caitlin Waldenhauer. Thank you to the Reverend John Delore for the music. You can follow me, Anita Flores, on Instagram and Twitter at Anita Jutina. That's
2: A-N-I-T-A-J-E-W-T-I-N-A. And you can follow me, Sandrine Tian, on Instagram at Misguided Notions. Help us get the word out by telling a friend about our show today. Make sure to rate and review Care Talkers and follow us on Apple Podcasts,
1: Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts.